Well, a new year brings a new series, and I've taken a couple of weeks off in the previous month to be preparing for this series. This series is going to be looking at the book of 1 John, and we're entitling it Living in the Light. And this series is going to take us, it says in the newsletter that you got this morning, that this is our winter sermon series. Uh, but we'll probably finish this series when you are uh, wearing shorts. And uh, today I know uh, that you don't feel like wearing shorts, uh, but uh, I want you to be starting to dream about warmer days uh, when we are in the fifth chapter of the book of First John and talking about graduations and that. We're going to be spending the first uh, probably four or five months, uh, Lord willing, uh, in this incredible series. And we're going to be unpacking uh, the truth of uh, this uh, incredible letter. Now what we're going to be doing differently uh, with this series than one we've ever done before is we really want to focus as a church on uh, what we can learn from this incredible letter. And so what the elders have decided is, is that uh, corresponding with uh, the sermon series, uh, our small group ministry is going to be going through a, a study out of First John. It won't be going uh, week by week where I'm at in the sermon uh, series, uh, but we're going to dedicate this uh, winter and springtime uh, to about a 14 or 15 week series uh, in our small group studies focused in on this same book. And uh, we really want to just dig as deep as we can into the understanding of what First John has uh, to offer us. So I'm going to ask that you would uh, go ahead and open up uh, to First John. Uh, that reminds me as, as you're turning there that if you are not in a small group right now, we've got over 200, I believe, adults in our small group ministry. And if you're not a part of a small group, uh, just write down in your friendship register you'd like more information about a small group. Uh, this is the first year that every night in the week uh, there is a group that is meeting and uh, they would love to have you a part of any of the groups and just uh, put that down in your friendship registry. Uh, it's never too late to join small groups and make sure uh, you do that. Well, uh, we're not going to read a particular uh, text this morning as we usually do because we're going to uh, break down this book more as an overview to get us an understanding of what the text uh, has to say to us in these coming months. And so as we open up this book, I would pray that you would read this. I know uh, listening to the recording last week that Pastor Scott gave you the charge uh, to uh, read the book of First John. Uh, whether you've read it or not before, uh, it's five chapters long. It will probably take you, if you're a quick reader, probably uh, 15, 20 minutes to read. If you're a slower reader, maybe a half hour. And uh, the Bears aren't any good, and uh, they're playing an even worse team this, this afternoon. You've got plenty of time to sit uh, in your house and uh, to read the book of First John uh, as we then uh, will begin to break down these passages, uh, looking at the first four verses next week. But let me just uh, pray for our time in the Word this morning. Father God, uh, we come before you, and Lord, we embark on a journey, uh, a journey through your Word. And Lord, we come to the book of First John. Lord, you laid this book on my heart uh, some time ago. And Lord, as I have studied it, as I have explored the meaning of your text, I am struck with the idea that we need First John more than ever before. Father, we live in a time where uh, we aren't uh, true followers of you many times. Oh Lord, we profess with our mouth that you are Lord, uh, but our creed doesn't match uh, the deeds that we live out. 
Uh, Father, there are many in our world that uh, have abandoned the truth and still under the name of Christianity uh, try to thwart the movement of Christ in your spirit uh, because of uh, their false teaching. Lord, this is what was going on in this time of 1 John. And Lord, we need to hear this message uh, today just as they needed to hear it more than 2,000 years ago. So Father, as we take a tour of this book with the time that we have today, I pray that it would whet the appetite of the people of Village Bible Church and that we would long to know uh, what your word has to say to us. Father, speak to us uh, in this series. Speak to us through your word. Father, that we would uh, be different, that we would love as you've commanded us to, that we would have an assurance of the faith that you've called us to have and that we would be born of you. Father, I pray that throughout this series and even today, if there is one who does not know you as their uh, Savior, that today would be the day that they would be assured of their faith and would know that they have eternal life. To you be all the glory, honor, and praise we ask. In Christ's name we pray and all God's people said, amen. I don't know about you, but Anytime you uh, read a book, one of the first things I want to do is read the introduction. Uh, The reason I want to read the introduction is many times in the introduction, the author outlines where uh, he wants to go with a particular book. He may never articulate that again in any of the chapters uh, after that, but in the introduction, many people just want to move from the introduction and get to right to chapter 1. When I preach, the thing I love to do is to uh, understand what is going on in the text, who's writing the text, who is it written to, and what are the purposes and the themes that any book of the Bible is written for. And that's what I want to do today. But I want to make sure, because when you do an overview, you can sometimes go too far. Many times you can blow all your sermons in, in a really well-done overview. Uh, some will say, why do you need to spend five months in a, in a book? You did a pretty good job of dealing with it in one week. So what I want to do is give you, and I'm using kind of a, a cultural term, the 411 uh, on First John. Now, when we call information uh, and we say, hey, I'm looking for a phone number, uh, I'm looking for Tim Bedall's number, he lives in Hinkley, the information uh, person on the other side of the phone call doesn't give you my social security number, it doesn't give you uh, my height and weight, it doesn't give you my income tax returns, it just gives you some basic information, my phone number, where I live, it may even, I think, be able to tell you the members of the household uh, that are there. Uh, And that's what I want to do today. I don't want to go so far that we uh, dig so deep into the various passages that we'll be exploring, but to give you an overview. And to do that, we want to understand who wrote this letter, who it was written to, and some of the themes and purposes behind it, and some of the guiding principles that we want to pull from this text. And so that's my uh, desire and my uh, aim this morning in that. Well, in doing that, I want you to think about something. I want you to think about how many times uh, you email. You know, email is one of the greatest inventions of our time. Some of you uh, love email so much that you can't live without it. Uh, You'll go home and the first thing that you'll do is run to your computer to check your email uh, to see if anybody has corresponded with you. Well, if you're like me, Many times uh, when I'm looking over my email, I will get all kinds of offers uh, from different people. 
In fact, I was looking just at some of uh, my uh, spam emails on my email page and I could get a Rolex watch for $49. And I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, that, that would be great. Rolexes are a couple thousand dollars and even more. And for $49, I can get a Rolex watch. And then I saw uh, I can get a college diploma for nineteen ninety-five. Now, I tell you what, if that was around in high school, I would have jumped at that. 1995, and it is a bona fide school. I mean, it really is, and and great teachers in it. 1995, you don't have to attend a class, and the teachers haven't been to school. uh, But 1995, at this great school, you can have a diploma. The one I love the most is from Mrs. Jenkins, who lives in Africa. And Mrs. Jenkins says, all I need Timbadol to do is send me a check for $1,000. And I will, because of that postage and all that, I will send you $1 million. Because I'm just looking for someone to give Mr. Jenkins money to. Man, email is a great thing. Rolexes for $49, college diplomas for $19.95, and for $1,000 to a trip to Africa, I get $1 million in return. Isn't it great? Well, we know, at least I hope you know, (laughs) that those things are scams. Recently, Reader's Digest had a whole feature article on people who had fallen to those scams. And I was amazed to see that the people's pictures were actually in the Reader's Digest magazine. They were dumb enough to fall for the scheme and they were dumb enough to be photographed in the Reader's Digest thing to show them how dumb and, and gullible they were. I need to be gracious to them, but, but we fall for scams. You say, I'm smarter than that. Let me ask you a question. How many infomercials have you watched and then let your fingers do the walk-in And you bought that thing that uh, you knew would change your life and now it sits in the closet. There's scams out there. And 1 John is a book that is a clarion call from one who loved the Lord to the people of God to say, beware, there are scammers out there. Beware, because those that profess that they know Christ and have a walk with Jesus Christ, aren't who they say they are. We live in a world of scammers. There's a lot of people in our world, in fact, almost one out of every three human beings walking on the face of the earth today call themselves Christians. Almost one-third. And yet our world is filled with violence and hatred and sin. Can they all be believers? Can they all be true Christians? Or are they falling for a scam? The book of 1 John is written to tell uh, Christians what it means to be a true believer. What it means to be born of God. What it means to live in the light. And that's what we want to invest the first portion of this year. Is that we would be a church that would know and that would understand what it means to live in that light. Because there's a group of tests that are going to happen in this book that are going to test what we believe. 
It's going to test the way we uh, live in, in a way of our morals, in, in the way of our uh, life of godliness or, or sinfulness. It's going to ask the question, uh, do we love one another? And it's going to be a set of tests. They're going to question whether we have fallen for a scam or not. This is not anything new in the world of uh, the biblical text. In fact, in Acts 20, verses 29 and 30, in his farewell address uh, to the Ephesian elders, Paul says, Beware, I am leaving you, but there will be some that will come in who will preach a different gospel, who will come in as wolves in sheep's clothing. Beware, be careful. I was watching on PBS, uh, it was either yesterday or the day before, uh, of a, a spiritual teacher who calls himself a Christian. Except the problem was, in listening to his message, he was very calming and very loving. Uh, Keith would have liked him. He, he, he wore khaki pants and no shoes, and, uh, and it looked pretty cool. I can't do that. i got hairy feet, and it doesn't work for me. That woke some of you up. But... But his message sounded really good. And he talked about Jesus. But then he interviewed a woman who is known very well in Hollywood for her lesbian lifestyle. And you know what he said? He says, aren't you glad Jesus says that he loves you and that the way you live doesn't matter? And I sat there and said, that's a scam. We're called to live a certain way. We can't live uh, any way we want. First John is going to teach us that. It's going to tell us that as believers, we cannot fall prey to those sheep, or uh, yeah, wolves in sheep's clothing. In fact, Jesus would address it in Matthew 7, verses 21 and 23, where he would give some of the most frightening words of all of Scripture, I believe, when he would say, many on that day will say, Lord, Lord, Did I not cast out demons? Did I not prophesy in your name? And Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. But didn't I do these things? And Jesus will say, it was counterfeit. The desire of the elders is that we would be a church that would be assured in our salvation. Not because of just a prayer that we prayed, not because we attend a Bible church, not because uh, we lead a Sunday school class, but because the Spirit of God is living and residing in us and it gives us confidence to know that we are the sons and daughters of God. But that means we must live like that. That means we must love like that. And that must mean that we interact with Jesus like that. So let's unpack some of this stuff of this book. You're going to be going all over the book as I just point out different scriptures. But the first thing we need to look at to have some information on First John is we need to know the person who wrote it. The person who wrote it. Uh, we don't know, uh, you know, a lot of people say that the only uh, book of the Bible that we uh, know to be anonymous is the book of Hebrews. But did you know that's not true? First uh, John never tells us who the author is. Notice in First John chapter 1 that there is no uh, salutation. If you were to look at any of uh, Paul's epistles, First uh, Thessalonians says, Paul, Silas, and Timothy... Uh, to the church of Thessalonians in God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he does it in Philippians and Ephesians and Colossians. He says all the time that it is Paul that is writing. 
But nowhere in 1 John do we see anybody as the author. And because of that, there's been great speculation as to who the author is of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Now, the reason why it comes up is both in 2nd and 3rd John. Now, they believe that all of these are written by the same individual. But in 2nd John and 3rd John, if you want to turn there for a moment, there is a salutation. And the salutation is from the elder. That's all it says. It just says the elder. And early on in the first, really the end of the second century, about a hundred years after Christ, what we hear about is an individual named Polycarp. And Polycarp is a church father, and he builds this idea that there were two Johns in the first century, John the Apostle and then John the Elder. And because of a veiled statement in one of his writings, there has created great question on who is the author of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Now, I will tell you that it is my understanding after reading about a dozen different commentaries from many different walks of life that I believe that the author is, in fact, the Apostle John. It is the one uh, who is the son of Zebedee, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And I want to tell you why I believe that. The first thing we need to understand about this person as we look at his writings is that this person spoke with great authority. The first thing we need to understand is this person spoke with great authority. Now notice what the author does. They pull, he pulls no punches. He tells it like it is. I think this is so incredibly refreshing in our church of warm and fuzzy feelings. Notice with me just for a couple moments here what John says in verses uh, one, uh, chapter 1, verse 6. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. Go down a couple verses. Verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Notice verse 10. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him, meaning God, out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. Look at chapter 2, verse 4. If the man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar and the truth is not in him. Verse 9. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Chapter 3, verse 4. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. Chapter 3, verse 8. He who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Verse 9. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. The author pulls no punches and he says it like it is. We as a people in the year 2010 need to be told like it is. We, we want to be, we want our, our salvation and our Christianity to be malleable. Uh, you know, hey, we want to be able, my, my kids have Play-Doh and we, we play and we, we mold different things. And that's how we as Christians many times, especially here in America, want our Christianity. We want to mold it to look like how we want it to look. We don't want to be told what it needs to look like. And John articulates to us, this is what Christianity is, and this is what it's all about. 
Notice he speaks with authority, but he also speaks with great affection. He speaks with great affection. He speaks with kind and affectionate words. Over a dozen times, he speaks of the recipients of this letter as beloved, as dear friends. He talks about them not just as mere acquaintances, but ones that he truly loves. In fact, in the latter part of this letter, we are going to see the word love almost four dozen times. This guy loves to love. And so we've got this man who is teaching with great authority, and we have this man who teaches with great affection. And so I look and I say, who does that sound like? To me, it sounds like John the Apostle, uh, the one who was with great authority. You know, John was the brother of James, the two sons of Zebedee. They were known as the sons of thunder. Why were they known as sons of thunder? Because they were known to be hotheads. They were known to be those that kind of walked around and, and carried themselves with an iron fist. In fact, in uh, one of the Gospels, uh, Mark chapter 3, verse uh, 17, they're entitled Sons of Thunder, and it's because of what takes place in Luke 9, 55 and 56. They come to a village, and they're preaching with Christ. And James and John uh, he begin to respond that the people uh, aren't responding. They don't want to hear the Gospel. And, and what do they do? They go and they say, we need to call down fire from heaven to consume these people. That's pretty bold. That's authoritarian. That, that's the way you write the ship. If they're not going to follow God, they're not going to follow Jesus Christ and his message, we'll just annihilate all of them. This guy was passionate. But notice he was also an affectionate one. Uh, he was the one who uh, was loved by Jesus. It says that he was the disciple that Jesus loved. This is the one who was so affectionate that he reclines at the chest of Jesus at the Last Supper. Now you say, Tim, that's an incredible dichotomy. I got to tell you something. When I was studying the author of this book, John reminds me that I probably named my middle son the wrong J name. Our little Joshua is our son of thunder. But he's also incredibly affectionate because Joshua lives by one word and one word alone, passion. He's a passionate little bugger. He burns at both ends of the candle brightly. One day he will go, one moment, not even one day, one moment he is coming up and cuddling with you and daddy, I love you. Daddy, you're the greatest. Daddy, you're awesome. And then I say, hey, can you go pick that up? And the foot comes down and the finger comes out and he says, don't tell me what to do. <laughs> I said to my wife, I'm so encouraged because I used to get, I still am a bit nervous about what that foot and that finger is going to look like when he's 20 years of age. And I told him, I hope you grow a little bigger or that finger's going to be broken a whole lot of times. And then I was encouraged to remember that there was a son of thunder that Jesus called to be his disciple. And that penned these words with great authority, calling it like it is. That's what Joshua does. He doesn't back down from a fight. He tells it like it is, but he speaks with great affection to the people 
he's writing to in 1 John. Notice the final thing I see about this author. He writes as an apostle. He writes as an apostle. Notice verse 1 through 4. The text we'll be looking at next week. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. This writer says, I've seen Jesus, I've touched Jesus, I've heard Jesus, I've hung out with Jesus. And so this author has to be, from what we know of Scripture, the Apostle John, the one whom Jesus loved, the one who stood by and watched Jesus die on the cross. And that's why he's able to speak with such incredible authority He had seen the risen Christ. He had seen the crucified Christ. He had seen the miracles. And he says, this is the message that we've heard from him in verse 5. And now we declare to you. This apostle is calling a people back to their God. Now notice the next thing we see. Not only the person who wrote it, but the people that this letter was written to. Again, nowhere in the text does it come out and say that this is written to the church at Philippi or Colossae or the church uh, in Rome. It just articulates uh, right from the beginning that we have a message to you. And the message is to my dear friends and to my beloved. But it doesn't say who it's written to. Now, we, if we assume that John the Apostle is the writer or author of this uh, incredible letter then we would know that uh, the Apostle John uh, lived the latter part of his life in the city of Ephesus, where the book of Ephesians or the church at Ephesus was written. Uh, That is in uh, modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor. This would be where John would write the book of Revelation, and he would write about uh, the seven churches uh, in Asia Minor. And he would articulate to the churches like Smyrna and Pergium and Thyatira and and those places. And so there's no doubt that if this is the author, that he's probably writing this in Ephesus, modern day Turkey. But we don't know to what church he's writing to. Now we do know that the, uh, the dating of this book is probably somewhere between 80 and 90 AD, about 50 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We know that the Apostle John was probably one of the youngest of all of the apostles because he lived the longest. He was the one that would uh, outlive everyone else. And this is a reason why many believe that uh, the title that is given in 2nd and 3rd John is the elder. John the elder. John the old man. He's, he's the guy that's been around that long. And many conservative scholars believe that's the reason for the title of the other two letters that bear his name. And so he articulates some things. But what do we know? We don't know who it's to, but we do know something about the people that he's writing to. Number one, we understand that he's writing to people at all levels of spiritual maturity. Notice for a moment at chapter 2, verse 12 through 14. He says about a half a dozen times in two, uh, three verses, I write to you. But notice what he says in verse 12. I write to you, dear children. He's talking about people that are immature in the faith, those who are, are need to be grown and taught, who need to be protected, little ones. I'm writing to you. And then he says, I'm writing to you fathers, the mature ones, the strong ones, the protectors. He says, I'm writing to you as well. 
Then he says, I'm writing to you young men. And he's saying to the young men, those that aren't just immature, but have been around for a while, but still need to grow in their faith. And I began to think about that. And I said, how awesome is it that we have a church that is filled with all those people? Now you say, Tim, wouldn't you want everybody to be mature? No, because we all are at different places. And while we attain the maturity that can be found in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, if we were all mature, we'd become ingrown and we'd become so focused in on maturity. And then who would need to be taught anything? Who would need to do anything? We'd be vying to teach one another what we know. And yet we know, and this is why children are so important in the church, and that's why young people are so important in the church, because there is a faith that is to be declared to those who need to be brought up into it. And so when we teach young children, when we teach the junior and senior hires, we need to be careful that we don't say, this is just babysitting. But like John says, this is important. This is to grow them in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. This is just like Village Bible Church. Young ones in the faith. Those that are early on in their faith and those who have been in the faith for some time. Another person I think that he's writing to are not just the people within the church, but those who have fallen prey to the false teaching that was going on in their day. And he's telling them, hey, don't get caught up in these things. Don't pursue these things. You were with us, but now you find yourself on the, uh, on the fringe uh, from following Christ. Come back and be a part of it. And then I think he's talking head on because I think he was the son of thunder. He's talking head on to the false teachers. And he's saying, this is the gospel. This is who Christ is. This is who he says that he is. And this is who we proclaim. Three recipients to this letter. Now notice we've seen the people and the person who wrote it. Now notice the purpose. Notice the purpose of this letter. The purpose of this letter is a couple different things. Throughout this letter, we are going to see the phrase, I am writing to you. I am writing to you, or I write to, and then he will respond. There's a lot of subtopics to this letter that we will address. In each of them, he gives a reason for his writing. But overall, the theme is twofold. Number one, write this in your outlines, the purpose of this letter is to differentiate, differentiate between true Christianity and false Christianity. He wants to say what is the real deal and what is a hoax. He wants to articulate that. And number two, he wants to give assurance. He wants to give assurance to those who are true followers of Christ. So he says, hey, this is the difference between true faith and a false faith. And then for those who are in the true faith, let me encourage you that you are in the true faith and can be assured of it. So how does he do it? Well, there's two approaches that he takes. First, he uses what we call a polemical, a polemical uh, response in the letter. The word polemic means to dispute or to argue. John, what he would do in this letter is he would confront those who were promoting a false gospel. Scholars believe that this false gospel was a precursor to the uh, heresy of Gnosticism. And we're going to get into more of this, but Gnosticism had three very important heirs to it. It had a doctrinal heir. What it meant was that uh, they had a view of Jesus that was completely false. Because Gnostics believed that the, uh, all matter, including our bodies, was evil, that there was no way that Jesus 
could be in bodily form. That Jesus, if he was God, he could not take on flesh. We know that would not be true. But Gnostics then would deny the virgin birth. They would deny that Jesus Christ was fully human. Some would say that he was literally just a phantom. Others said that he would attain godship at his uh, baptism. And, And these things would run rampant. And there were these false teachers who were coming and saying that your, your flesh is evil. And, and so because of that, it ruined the doctrine that they had. But notice the other thing that it was. It ruined the morals that they had. It was doctrinal error. It was moral error. Because the flesh was evil and only the spirit was good. What you did in the flesh didn't matter. And so when uh, John says, if you say that you have not sinned, But have you make yourself out to be a liar? The reason why John brings that up is he says, hey, you can't continue to live one way and say you're a believer. That's false Christianity. God says if you're going to follow him and be a follower of Jesus Christ, then you must live according to the commands that God gives. The next thing that we see is a relational error. It's a relational error that John combats. And what he says, uh, what the, the Gnostics say is that not only was matter evil and the spirit good, but because of that, there was a pursuit for knowledge. A pursuit for knowledge. And that pursuit for knowledge led to pride. And that pride led to me, if I was a Gnostic, saying, you know what? I don't need you. I don't need to be involved in a relationship with you because I'm on a journey to know something that we really can't talk about because it's secret, because it's a secret knowledge. And so as a result of that, what happens is, is that there's no fellowship. And so these false teachers are saying, you can live however you want to. You don't have to believe what the apostles taught about Jesus and you don't have to love your brothers. And so what John says in this book is he says, let me give you a command, love one another. Why? Because if you don't love one another, then the love of God is not in you. You can't do this ministry, this uh, uh, walk with Jesus on your own, pursuing some secret thing. You have to do it in community. And so he gives this call out to confront the people who are destroying the faith. Notice next it's a pastoral. Uh, it's written in a pastoral form while hitting head on the opposition. Uh, John focuses his letter on the sheep under his care. He speaks to them and assures them of their faith in Christ. He calls them to live in the light. Notice what he says in 1 John 3, 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. He says as a good pastor, God loves you. And God has showered his favor and his grace upon you. And he loves you and he lavishes that love on you. And so you can be assured that though you fall to sin, that if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. He's encouraging those who are timid and weak. So he confronts those like a good pastor and elder needs to do. And he also loves and encourages. Because of our time, let's move to the fourth point and close with this. The principles that we are taught by this letter. What do we want to learn this, uh, this next coming months uh, about this letter? Number one, if we want to have assurance in our faith, if we want to know what true Christianity is, 
then we need to have a proper understanding of first our Savior. We need to have a proper understanding of our Savior. Understand this, we cannot have real Christianity without a real Christ. We cannot have real uh, Christianity without uh, a real understanding and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. John doesn't say, hey, this guy was a phantom. This guy uh, was just a, a figment of our imagination. He says, we've touched him. We've heard him. We've seen him. I was there. I'm an eyewitness and I proclaim to you. And so we need to have a proper understanding of Christ. That means a proper understanding of the historical events that proclaim Jesus. That He came and was sent by God. That He was one of us. That He put on flesh. That He died on the cross and rose from the grave. Do you know Him? Do you know Him and what history tells us about Him? Next, do we believe and know the witness of the apostles? This book is written by one who loved and lived with Jesus and saw everything and spoke with great passion to that. And he says, this is the message in verse uh, 5 of chapter 1, the message we have heard from him and declare to you. To follow Christ means we must follow the apostles' teaching, that which is recorded in God's word. We can't believe what we want about God. We can't write our own gospels about God and Jesus Christ. We must take what has been written by the apostles, the pillars of the faith. Next, we must have a proper understanding of salvation. You want assurance of of your relationship with Christ? It involves having a proper understanding of salvation. Chapter 5 tells us in verse 11, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Notice what he says. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. We're going to spend a lot of time looking at how do we know that we have had We have eternal life. It means having a proper understanding of our own salvation. It means following Christ and His commands. It means confessing sin. It means living for Christ every day. And finally, it means a proper view of sanctification. John wants us to remember that the real and true faith, the real and true Christianity is done in community. The last part of this letter is written about how to love one another how to care for one another, how to show the love of God to one another. The Scripture says we it can't say we love God and hate our brother because if we do, we're lying. And because of that, in chapter 1, we see that we are called because of the faith that has been proclaimed by the apostles that now we share a common fellowship and a common joy because of our walk with Jesus Christ. I know we have moved fast this morning. We've had a lot going on. But I want us to just pause for a moment. I want you to close your eyes for a moment. And I know we'll get to ABF here and and fellowship. But I want to ask these questions as we open this incredible book and we embark on this journey. How well do you know Jesus Christ this morning? You may be a follower of His. You may profess Him. But how well do you know Him? How much are you pursuing a knowledge of Christ? Not just a book understanding, but an intimate understanding of your Savior. Number two, 
You call yourself a follower of Christ? Not only how well do you know him, how do you do at following his commands? How well do you do at following his commands? Do you do what he says? Do you live as he's called you to live? Do you turn from sin when temptation brings it your way? Do you pursue uh, the cause of Christ when he leads you in that direction? How well do you do at following his commands? How well do you obey? Number three, how quick are you to admit sin in your life? When was the last time you went before the Lord and confessed your sin? Knowing that he's faithful to forgive you, when was the last time that you were prodded by the Spirit to confess your sin? True Christianity is that which confesses sin often. Number four, how much do you love others? Uh, Not just those that you like, but even those that you struggle to care for. How much do you love them? Are you willing to serve them? Are you willing to reach out to them in their time of need? Are you willing to encourage them and minister to them? How much do you love others? If there's any question or pause in your mind this morning to that, then there are two realities. Number one, you may not be a believer. And it's time to get right with Jesus. And before you leave this place, see me, see Pastor Keith or Pastor Scott or any of the elders that you've seen on the stage today or those at the Welcome Center that can help you out and get to know Jesus Christ for the first time. Number two, it's time for you as a believer to get serious about Jesus. This is a serious book for serious times. And we at Village Bible Church long for that to be the life that we live. Let's pray. Father God, I look forward to this journey. Not because it will be an easy one. There will be times where we will want to take this book and throw it to the side because it will go against everything that we know. But Father, it is what will change us and transform us. We need Jesus anew in our lives. Lord, we want to live not just a a normal, everyday American Christian life. We want to live a radical, Christ-centered Christian life. To do that, we must be born of you. To do that, we must follow your commands. To do that, we must put our faith and trust that you alone are our key to eternal life. To that, we must love one another and live out that great commandment. Lord, let us live in light of it. Let us live in the light so that we will no longer walk in darkness, but live in the light of light. Encourage us and empower us and strengthen us to do that beginning now as we leave this place to fellowship. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen.